My name is Dr. Anne. This is WMPG, and this is Safe Space, a live show for courageous conversations. This is part of our ongoing series about sibling relationships. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on sibling abuse, and my guest is Dr. Vernon Weehy. Dr. Weehy has a PhD in social work. He also has a master's in divinity and a master's in social work, and is the author of eight books, all about different forms of abuse but four of them about sibling abuse that we'll be focusing on tonight. His most recent book about the subject is What Parents Need to Know About Sibling Abuse, but he's also written Sibling Abuse, Hidden Physical, Emotional, and Sexual Abuse, Perilous Rivalry, When Siblings Become Abusive, and lastly, Brother-Sister Hurt. Dr. Weehy is now retired at 78 years old. He lives in Lexington, Kentucky, and is reflecting on a life of teaching and research designed to help parents prevent, detect, and stop sibling abuse. It is really my honor to welcome you, Dr. Weehy, to Safe Space. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So let's start with helping me understand what is the difference between sibling rivalry, which is ubiquitous, and sibling abuse? You're very right. Sibling abuse. Rivalry is ubiquitous, and when I talk to groups about it, I usually begin by saying all kids fight, all kids call each other names, and some play doctor. But sibling sibling abuse is when sibling rivalry gets out of hand. I've had parents say to me, I can't stand to be in the same room with my kids. They're fighting all the time. That's sibling rivalry that's out of control. And there are several things to look for. For example, um, is there a pattern going on? Is one child constantly picking on the other? And that introduces a second uh, criteria. Is one child a victim of the other? What do we mean by a victim? A victim is someone that needs help. If you see an automobile accident and an individual is trapped in the car, you wouldn't think of going up to that person and saying, hey, get out of the car, don't sit there. No, they need help. They're a victim of the accident. And often one child, generally a younger child, becomes the victim of the name-calling, the derogatory comments, or the hitting and slapping, uh, the physical abuse, the former being emotional abuse, of an older sibling. So what I'm hearing you say is the kind of you cross a certain threshold from sort of standard fighting to once there becomes a pattern and once one child is sort of consistently the one who needs help, who's being victimized, that's you're when you very, start to think of it. You're very right. Now, I, one has to, as a parent, one has to judge that. Uh, obviously, when a parent says, I can't stand to be around my kids because of the fighting, it's over the hill. It's gone too far, and they need to intervene somehow. Right. And how common is this? I understand there was some landmark research that really kind of launched your interest in this area, and I'd love to hear about that. Yes, there was a study done on violence in American families by uh, Dr. Murray Strauss of the University of New Hampshire, the Family Violence Institute, and they did a study of violent actions uh, during the past week, month, year of several thousand American families, and they found that violence between siblings was much more prevalent 
than violence between the parents, which we would call spouse abuse or partner abuse, and much more prevalent than violence between parents and children that we would call child abuse. But no one really picked up on those findings, and I was intrigued by it, and my interest was in violence in the family. Uh, So I did a study involving several hundred adults who had been or who were survivors of sibling physical, emotional, and sexual abuse when they were children. I mean, it's really striking to me, you know, we think about how high the consciousness is about domestic violence, how high the consciousness is about child abuse. You know, for instance, for me as a doctor, I'm a mandated reporter. If I suspect child abuse, I'm required to report it and do something about it. But the public consciousness about sibling abuse is is nowhere near at that level. And and what you're saying is it's actually more common than the other two. Yes, you're so right. And the primary uh, reason for this is it's excused as sibling rivalry. It's hard to excuse a man who is making derogatory comments to his wife or slapping her, beating her, or beating a child. But with two children where this interaction is occurring, it's excused as, oh, it's sibling rivalry, or another excuse my subjects in my research said repeatedly was the parents would say, oh, they'll grow out of it, or boys will be boys. Well, that's excusing the behavior. It's not recognizing recognizing it for what it is, namely abuse, and that it can have significant effect on the child as the child grows up as an adult. And I would let's come back to that because I do want to ask you about the long-term effects. Um, but I can imagine that there may be people listening who are still who may be tempted to minimize themselves and say, "Oh, come on! Surely all brothers and sisters have occasions where they fight." How how do we know? I mean, what what you're really saying is the f- there has to be a frequency and a pattern to it, right? And, and it has pre- to be quite destructive. Yes, and. I've had some people at, uh, respond to me, especially on radio talk shows, where they were able to ask me questions. And some have said, oh, get off of it. It toughens up a child. Well, I'm not sure any child needs toughening up. And my kind of, I have kind of a pat response to that when they say, oh, it's good for them. And there's a prominent... Um, psychologist who has a column in newspapers who denies that there's such a thing as uh, sibling abuse. My my, um, general response to that is, well, if you really want to toughen up the child when it comes time to teach a child how to swim, go out in the middle of the lake in a rowboat and drop the child off the side. That'll toughen the kid up. and he'll Of course, the sad thing is there are people who would do that, Vernon. <laughs> uh, there probably are. I don't want to encourage it, Anne. No. But I don't think any child, in the light of the violent context of our society, needs toughening up. If anything, in this day and age, I think we need to develop some empathy skills in trying to understand each other. And that seems pivotal, because I know you've written articles about that. Tell me about how empathy is protective against abuse. Well, I've done some studies comparing 
adults who have abused their children have been adjudicated through the court for it and compared them to a similar samples of non-abusive parents and empathy was a critical variable. By empathy, I mean the ability to put yourself in the shoes of a child. For example, before you would slap a child across the face, hopefully there's a computer-like response in your brain that says, how would I feel if somebody did that to me? And empathy has been shown in psychological research to be an inhibiting variable to keep uh, it keeps in check violent behavior toward another person. And can you teach empathy, or does the child have to yes. receive? Do yes. you have to receive empathy, empathy, empathy to get it? And uh, this really relates to your field. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Karkoff did a lot of teaching of empathy to psychotherapists because empathy is a critical variable in psychotherapy for the doctor to be able to say to a patient, this must be very difficult for you for what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And it can be taught. Um, there, there were some, there was a movement where some said, oh, you have to be born with empathy. And I don't think that's true. I think you could be born in a very non-empathic family and say, I will not treat people the way I was treated. Do you think that a child who does not receive empathy from their own parents, do you think that child is more at risk of behaving in abusive ways? I I would say so. I'm just saying this off the top of my head. I can't cite evidence to that effect. But yes, I think if a child cannot feel how others may be feeling at times... Um, no, I'm saying yes. the opposite. I'm saying if the child is not on the receiving end, like if they don't experience their parents empathizing with them, if they don't ever get to have that where they receive it, do you think it puts them more at risk? Yes. I think it. Uh, it they tend to be a non-empathic person, yeah. although life presents very ma many corrective emotional experiences. And maybe they will see when they're in the homes of friends the way those parents respond to their child in a different way. And they may, in an unconscious way, say to themselves, I like the way his mom responds to him or right. the way his dad talks to him and may emulate or model that behavior. Right. You're, you're powerfully, in your writings, you say, you know, again, and clear, very clearly that sibling abusers are not born but are made. And you cite kind of two powerful ways that kids learn to be abusive. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, one way is we model behavior of others. This is called social learning theory in psychology. And the more potent the person is, the more likely we are to model that behavior. So when we see prominent people being aggressive or violent toward each other, we see, think that uh, that's probably the way everybody acts. Or if a child hears dad calling mother the old lady or bitch or some degrading term or sees him slapping her or pushing her, 
this is behavior that gets modeled. Mm. I think another significant way um, that children are learning violence is through video games. Uh, Many of the video games have a tremendously violent behavior in them. I had uh, several teachers in a graduate class a few years ago who taught fourth and fifth graders, and they said that many of those children spent their evenings watching Grand Theft Auto. And as adults in my class, who were, we were about the average age of, not including me, but the students were about 30 years of age, I had one of them bring the game to class. We played it on the television screen. And we got so sucked into that game as adults by, and in the game, you steal a car and you mow people down on the sidewalks. We would call out, look at there, somebody, get them. And we, I stopped the game and said, look at the effect it has had on us as adults. What is the effect on fourth and fifth graders who the research shows their brains are not fully developed? They don't see cause and effect always, and they tend to model the behavior of others because they're learning. They're getting, many of the youngsters are getting the message that the way we solve problems, interpersonal problems, is through hitting, slapping, derogatory comments. And we see that so often on on television, in videos. The unfortunate thing is we don't see the long-term effects in -hmm. these videos and in these um, movies that are so violent. I want to switch now and ask you a little bit about um, some of the kind of special cases of sibling abuse that really got my attention in reading your book. One was about tickling. And I was really interested in, in having you say a little bit more about how tickling can be a form of sibling abuse. Yeah, tickling can be pleasurable. It can even be erotic. But tickling, when it goes on against the protestations of the victim, when the victim doesn't want the individual to do it, becomes very abusive. And I had a number of adult subjects who said when they were growing up, their brother would pin them down with his legs on their arm and would tickle tickle them uh, just mercilessly until often they urinated or wet themselves, that is no longer uh, a game. That is abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. You wrote about times when they like felt they couldn't breathe or they threw up. Yes. A terrifying right. loss it, of control. Right. Zip the child, zip a sibling up in a sleeping bag or would choke the child. Now, we talk about the effects this has. I, I had several subjects who said they cannot wear turtleneck sweaters or blouses that are tight around the neck because it reminds them of how their brother would choke them when they were growing up, and the brother thought it was hilarious. And in a, in a number of instances, the victim passed out. This is no longer child's play. This is abuse. And so tell me more about some of the long-term consequences of sibling abuse. What what did you see in your research? I think one of the primary um, consequences is depression. Um, Depression 
often is viewed as anger that uh, instead of turned out at the sibling, it's turned out, turned against themselves. Now, I, I want to also relate to the variable of shame that you have talked about a lot on your programs. We're not presenting sibling abuse here as only just the actions of one child, let's say the older child or the younger, but it's sibling rivalry, and there was give and take between the two of them, but then it escalates where the victim really is has moved into abusive behavior instead of just rivalry. So frequently the uh, the perpetrator, I should say, has moved into abusive behavior. So frequently the victim experiences some shame for the things that they did in turn to the perpetrator, and um, they blame themselves at, at times mm. for the problem that they've had. Um, it, it, low self-esteem is one. When you're told, for example, by a sibling, an older sibling, you're stupid, dumb, and ugly, and as children we're told to believe what we're uh, reminded of our parents to believe what we're told in generally, you can grow up feeling like you're dumb, stupid, and ugly. And I've had some adults say, I've been told that all my life, and I really believed it until I received some therapy. How do people handle the poor self-esteem? They often handle it by excessive eating, abuse of food, drink, alcohol, or drugs. These things make us feel better momentarily. Um, right, so we're saying it sets people up for a, a, lot, a, lot, a lifetime, potentially, of struggle. Exactly, exactly. And I can't tell you how many adults have written me or even contacted me. I had a woman call me recently who said, I picked up one of your books in the library, and it has changed my life. And I don't say this in an egotistical way. I'm very touched that she felt that. She said, I suffered terribly from an older sister who absolutely tormented me. And she said, it was my parents always look, <clears throat> excuse me, my parents always looked the other way, or they would partially blame me and said, would say, what did you do to deserve what she was doing to you? And she said, I couldn't even really find a therapist who recognized this as abuse. And here, your book and the term so many of these people use in their letters or conversation to me is, your book validated, your book validated for me that this wasn't sibling rivalry, but this was abuse. If anything, that's my hope for this show, uh, Vernon, is that we can really offer that validation because this is such a source of suffering. And if people don't feel like it'll be understood, then there's a tendency to hide. Right. And, and, to and stay a show isolated. like this, Anne, is so important because people can, quiet, in the quiet of their home, can listen to a program like this and reflect back on their own lives. I've had many people, and I want to say this, I've had many adult survivors speak to me after, let's say I'm speaking to a group of people, and they'll linger afterwards, and they'll say, how can I get my brother or my sister who was so abusive to me to say that I'm, they're sorry for what they did? 
My typical response is don't waste your energy on that because you'll never be satisfied with the tone of their voice, whether they're really sincere, and these kind of things. Instead, invest that energy into getting healing for yourself, getting therapy, uh, getting into a support group, if it was sexual abuse, at a rape crisis center, for example. Put that energy into yourself. I find many of these survivors of of sibling abuse have no contact with their family. They they cannot stand to sit across the table at Christmas or Hanukkah uh, or any festival when brother or sister who is a perpetrator is whistling Dixie and everything's fine in their life when they are hurting from the pain that they suffered from a sibling. I can appreciate that. So many of them just have no contact with their family. But to try to get a sibling to apologize for what what they've done uh, is a futile effort. And I've had parents of the, the siblings say, get a life. This was 25, 30 years ago. Get off of it. Well, as you well know in your own practice, emotional injuries from a child in childhood linger for many, many years, and the years don't necessarily erase the pain. And what's really striking about that example is that, of course, the parent could offer the apology for not protecting the sibling better, for not recognizing the the abuse. And here's where defenses come into play. They are defensive about their own parenting. They don't want to admit that I didn't do a very good job in protecting you. Right. You know, one of the things that was really striking, I don't want to focus on sexual abuse among siblings, but I want to say one thing that I read and learned from you that really got my attention, which is that one of the ways that sibling sexual abuse really differs from adult to child sexual abuse is that with an adult, there's often this pattern of the adult sort of enticing the child along and kind of telling them how special they are. Right. But that with sibling sexual abuse, it's it's much more overt threats that are used. Right. And Older in, brother is uh, sexually playing with younger sister, and he says, don't tell mother what I'm doing or I'll kill you. And sister is very frightened of it by this and goes along with it. And you're very right. With adults to children, it's usually enticement. Grandfather says, you're my favorite granddaughter, and then takes liberties with her. Or it's the power that the person represents, for example, a priest or a coach, um, and the power that they represent, the individual acquiesces to that power as a way of pleasing the individual. It's very creepy that that to realize that among siblings, sexual abuse may have even more of a feeling of kind of helplessness or danger or fear because the the violent aspect of it is so much more explicit. Yes, right. And it's often irrational, too. I had an adult subject say when she was a child, her brother offered her 25 cents if if she would perform oral sex on him. And she said, I have spent my lifetime regretting that quarter I ever accepted. This is what's called in the mental health field, stinking thinking. And right. she wasn't able at that time to make an 
a, a decision, and maybe she had not had good sexual instruction from a parent. I want to ask you before we end about effective ways that parents can prevent this, because I know that all my friends with more than one child may be listening and thinking, oh, no, you know, how, what if this happens in my house, and what can I do to protect my children? And I'd love to hear you just briefly okay. review what you think. I don't want think. to put anybody on a panic who has more than one child, because, again, as we started, sibling rivalry is normal. But if you feel one child is constantly a victim of the other child, it's perhaps time to intervene. Uh, I think good supervision is important. A lot of the sexual abuse occurred when an older sibling was babysitting a younger sibling. And it's good if parents, after I'm not against older siblings babysitting younger ones, but then parents should ask the younger child alone, not when they're together, when the two children are together because of the threat nature. Uh, did everything go all right last night, or how how, how do you do you mind when brother babysits for you? And then listen with the third ear, listen to what the child is saying. I think another thing. Uh, adults need to help children own their own bodies, appropriate touching and inappropriate touching, developing awareness of that. And finally, I think we need to violence-proof our homes. Parents need to watch the amount of violence that's being watched on television, the kind of video games that are being played, the kind of movies. And you cannot keep these things entirely away from children but you need to talk about them from time to time. This is not the way we solve problems, the way it happened in this movie or in this cartoon. We talk about our problems. We develop an understanding of each other. Mm. So I want to, in closing, I want to ask you, um, you know, looking back, uh, looking over your, your CV and preparing to interview you, I was so struck. You've got over eight books about different forms of abuse, over 50 articles about sibling abuse, child abuse, elder abuse, you know, spousal abuse. And I'm, I'm so struck that you've dedicated your life to this, to raising the public awareness and to trying to prevent it. And I'm curious, from where you sit now, um, where are the signs of hope for you in seeing how, you know, where, where the status of things are and what are the things that really give you concern? First of all, that's a very thoughtful comment to make. I'm 78 years old and in the twilight years of my life, although I'm in very good health um, and I'm enjoying life. As I look back, um, we have come a long way in 35 years. 1974, the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act was passed by Congress, and child abuse became a... Um, something everyone became aware of, the mandating where people like you as psychiatrists, doctors, nurses, and so forth must report abuse. Then came the women's movement that highlighted spouse abuse. Then the elder abuse came into prominence and became aware. 35, 40 years ago, if you lived in an apartment and you heard upstairs a man beating his child or beating his wife, you probably wouldn't have said anything. But nowadays you can report that. There are avenue, public avenues for reporting this and dealing with it. So we've come a long way, and I'm pleased about this. But I'm also very concerned about the 
new ways that violence is evolving in our society. We are living in a very violent time, um, macro speaking as terms of nations toward each other. We have the ability to destroy our planet with the weapons that we have. Uh, I am concerned about the violence in the electronic age, violence on uh, video games and movies and so forth. And I'm also very concerned about guns in our society. There's a number of states that have passed laws which allow people to carry guns into a bar. Guns and alcohol do not mix. I'm amazed at how many middle school and high school children, particularly in inner cities, are carrying a gun. Um, So we have a long way to go. This This is constantly a problem that we must deal with in our society. Uh, the violence that we exhibit toward each other. Uh, Dr. Vernon Weehy, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for all the years of work that you have been contributing to try to protect people from abuse and to reduce the violence in our society. I really thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on the program, and I compliment you on the work you're doing with your program. Thank you. I want to thank Ken Capron for mixing the sound tonight, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or send the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there to get a weekly announcement. You can also download the show onto your iPod from iTunes if you go to the iTunes store and go onto podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog.